Okay. <clears throat> we are doing now Thursday's portion of Shemite. And here we have God had appeared to Moses, to Moshe, and gave him this mission. So we're here in the middle of the saga of Moses at the burning bush. First time God is appearing to him in this fashion, giving him this mission to go to Egypt. We're in the middle of this. We're in chapter 3 up to verse 16. So God says to him, Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, God, the God of your forefathers, has appeared to me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I have indeed taken account of you and what is done to you in Egypt. We says to him to gather the elders, and Rashi questions that because obviously if we have 600,000 people, it would be a lot of elders together. So elders here doesn't just mean age, but mean those that are the counselors of the Jews, the sages of the Jews. And I have said, now we're continuing the message, I shall bring you up from the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanim, the Chitim, the Amori, the Prizi, the Chiva, the Yavusi, to the land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall come to the king of Egypt and say to him, God, the God of the Jews, the Hebrews, happened upon us. And now, please let us go on a three-day journey in the wilderness, and we shall bring offerings to God our God. So, God is saying here, they will listen to you because previously, in the first verse that we read, in verse 16, Moses used a code word, pakod pakadati, which we translate as I was taken into account. But that is the sign that was passed to them from Jacob and from Joseph that this is going to be the wording of the Redeemer. So some say it was secret and just the sages knew. So when Moses came and said it, they knew he was a real thing. Others say, no, all the Jews knew it. But since they knew that Moses stuttered, and there's no way he could say such a tongue twister when he said these words so smoothly, they knew it was indeed God giving them the sign he's a redeemer. So it says the God of the Jews, the Hebrews, Ha'ivriam, which is spelled with a two yud, some places it's spelled with one, which is an allusion to the template. So he happened upon us. God happened upon us as if, so to speak, by chance. So this now, this is what you're supposed to tell Pharaoh, what's going to happen. I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go and not with a mighty hand. This verse is sort of hard to understand, and Rashi is going to give us two explanations. One, Rashi explains these two phrases. I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, and not with a mighty hand, to me now, I know the king of Israel is not allowed to go, except for if I don't show him my mighty hand. Meaning, if he's unaware of a mighty hand, he's not going to go. But when I show him my mighty hand, eventually he's going to crumble. Rashi here in this case is explaining the Hebrew to me not allow you to go. In, literally, the Hebrew is lo yutain, will not give you to go. And Rashi explains at length and gives a number of examples that this yitain, give, contextually can be understood as allow. That was the first way Rashi explained this verse. The other way explaining it is, <clears throat> the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, and not with a mighty hand, meaning, and not because Pharaoh's hand is mighty, which then flows into the next verse where God says, I shall send forth my hand and I shall strike Egypt with all my wonders. 
meaning he's not going to allow you to go, and not because Pharaoh's hand is mighty, but when I send my mighty hand, then he's going to crumble, which is the perspective of Onkelos, not because his strength is mighty. This is how Onkelos also understands these words. Which at the next verse, I shall strengthen with my hand, and I will strike Egypt with all my wonders. They shall form its midst, and after he will send you out. The first explanation might seem simpler to us, contextually understanding the linking of the two phrases. The second explanation works better with the next verse. I shall grant these people fame in the eyes of Egypt, meaning obviously when we leave, that it will happen that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall request from her neighbor and from the one who lives in her house silver vessels, golden vessels, and garments. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, and you shall empty out Egypt. So what do we mean from the one who lives with her house? So Rashi explains this means if the Egyptian woman and the Jewish woman live in the same house. We don't assume the Jews owned homes that the Egyptians lived in, but it's possible the Egyptians owned homes and the Jews lived in them. And then we have a very, very long Rashi explaining how to understand this third to last word here, beneath Saltam as Mitzrayim, which Rashi explains, as Unkelis does, and you shall empty out Egypt. And he derives from there that root word, which he shows us in several places, can mean to empty out. The rest of the long Rashi is explaining why he does not agree with a different translator's commentary, Menachem ben Saruk, who looks at the word from the Shoresh dropping the nun of Tzel to mean to put aside, to separate, that you will separate out all the precious things from Egypt. But Rashi says this can't be so because if that is true, the vocalization, the vowels will be different. It wouldn't work. And also, it wouldn't be in the active voice, it would be in the passive voice. And Rashi gives many, many, many examples to prove that grammatically, because of these two points, it can't mean to separate, it has to mean to empty out. So this was all God's message to Moses. You are the Redeemer, you now have a mission, go to Egypt and redeem the Jews. Now we have Moses' response, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses responded and said, They will not believe me, and they will not heed my voice, for they will say, God did not appear to you. God said to him, What is this in your hand? And he said, A staff. Now, what is this? In the Hebrew, it's two separate words, ma ze. But it's written here as one word, ma <clears throat> To be interpreted... Of course, in the Torah, there's no vowels. So instead of reading it as maze, because it's one word, we can actually read it as something else, mize, from this. Meaning from this staff which is in your hand, you should be hit. Because you're suspecting these innocent people. You're suspecting the Jews or they won't believe me. How do you know they won't believe you? Nothing happened yet. Maybe they will believe you. That's the Midrashic explanation. On the more literal explanation... It's as if God is saying, what is this? It's a stick. Oh, yeah, it's a stick. All right, I'll show you. It could also be a snake. Which, of course, doesn't explain why the Mazda became one word, but it's explaining why God would say to him, what is this about this obvious staff in his hand? 
So God said, cast it on the ground, and he cast it on the ground and became a snake, and Moses fled from it. So by transforming the staff into a snake, God is hinting to Moses that you spoke gossip derogatorily, slander on the Jewish people by saying they won't believe you, and that's why we're switching this into the snake, because that's the snake, just like the snake in the Garden of Eden spoke badly about God, you're speaking badly about the Jewish people. God said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp his tail. He stretched out his hand and took hold of it and it became a staff in his palm. The Rashi here explains the Hebrew he took hold of it to mean to grasp it, as we see many, many examples. Especially when you have the bays following the Vichazak. So, that they shall believe that God, the God of their forefathers, appeared to you, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God said further to him, bring your hand to your chest, and he brought it to his hand to his chest, and then he withdrew it, and behold, his hand was stricken with saras, like snow. So, saras, of course, we know is white, but we're saying here that his hand looked like it had saras, it didn't have saras, but it looked, it appeared to have saras, because this is another sign also implying that Moses had spoken inappropriately by saying the Jews aren't going to believe in him. Because we know, of course, Saras, this spiritual skin disease, is a punishment for speaking inappropriate words. So this is a sign. This is a sign that's supposed to validate he's a messenger of God. But it's also specifically this sign chosen to give Moses also the message about these words he said. Then God said, return your hand to your chest, and he turned his hand to his chest. Then he withdrew from his chest, and behold, it had reverted to be like his flesh. The Rashi points out that we see that good comes faster than punishment, because initially, when he withdrew his hand, when it had saras, it didn't say when he withdrew it from his chest, meaning the fact that it didn't say that shows that it only received the Tarath affliction when it left his chest. But the cure, it says, from his chest, meaning the cure came when Moses' hand was still on his chest, not when he took it out. So the cure, even though we only saw it after he took it out, but was cured immediately, the bad only happened when he took it out when we saw it. So this proves that the good, the cure, comes more quickly than the bad, the punishment. Next verse. It shall be that if they do not believe you and do not heed the voice of the first sign, they will believe the voice of the later sign. In other words, once you tell them, I was stricken on your account because I spoke these negative words about you, I got punished. They're going to believe you because they know that that's what happened. They saw this uh, by Pharaoh with Abimelech because of Sarah. They know people get stricken because of them. They know God's going to stand up for them. And it shall be that if they do not believe you in those two signs and do not heed your voice, you shall take from the waters of the river and pour it onto the dry land. And the water that you take from the river will become blood when it is on the dry land. So this is the third sign to show the Jews. Again, the first sign was the staff becoming the snake. The second was his hand having this sarah. This is now a third sign to convince the Jews he really is a messenger of God. So the first two signs, we know, had a connection to the words he said that the Jews won't believe him. What's the significance of this sign? Obviously, it's not random. So what he's doing here is he's alluding to the Jews 
that through the first plague that God's going to send, he's going to take revenge on the Egyptians' God. Because when God punishes the people, he, the first thing he does is destroy their God. In this case, of course, the Nile. The Jews worship the, the Jews, sorry, the Egyptians worship the Nile. And as such, the Nile is the first thing that's going to be stricken, and therefore the waters of the Nile will turn to blood. So here, by symbolically these waters become blood, it's implying what's going to happen to the Nile. Now, if we look in the verse, it says twice, will become, will become. And Rashi says that that's telling us that they become blood when they reach the dry land. In other words, it wasn't blood in Moses' hand, it's blood only when it hits the dry land. And the benefit in that is, if in Moses' hand the waters already became blood-like, well, skeptics could say, oh, you know, Moses has some red dye in his hand, this isn't really a miracle. So the Jews saw that when it left Moses' hand, it was water. But when it hit the ground, suddenly, and therefore obviously it was by God's intervention, it became blood. So these are all, again, this is all how God's responding. So Moses said, well, I can't go. They're not going to believe me. And God says, they'll believe you. Why are you speaking bad about them? And I'm giving you three signs to really strengthen their belief in you. But now Moses continues. Moses replied to God, please, my Lord, I'm not a man of words, also not since yesterday, nor since the day before yesterday, nor since you first spoke to your servants. For I am heavy of mouth and heavy of speech. So Moses here is saying, I have been talking to you for a lot of days here. I say to say, God spent seven days convincing Moses to do this mission. The terms, yesterday, the day before, yesterday, and since you first spoke, imply three days. And uh, also, 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 that each one of these phrases is accompanied by the word also doubles them for another three days. So that's six days. And now we have the day we're talking now, which is seven days. So, Moses said this to God on the seventh day, meaning for seven days Moses is trying to get out of this mission, which of course we're told is actually a sign that he truly was the leader, because a true leader doesn't want to lead. Someone that jumps to be the leader is not a true leader. He wants the honor for himself. Someone who does not want the position, that's the sign of a true leader. So Moses is saying, don't send me. Don't send me. Send someone else. And finally, after seven days of Moses trying to plead with God to send someone else, God responded in anger, and then Moses accepted it. Now, why was Moses so reluctant? So I said from a specific perspective, he was reluctant because of his complete nullification of self. He truly didn't feel he was worthy of being the Redeemer. Rashi here brings in, which of course does not conflict this, complimenting this, that he really thought Aaron, his brother, should be the Redeemer meaning Aaron was his older brother. Moses has been out of Egypt for 40 years. And Aaron has been leading the Jews since the passing of his father, Amram. So why should I come in as the leader? Aaron already is a prophet, as Rashi shows us here. He's the leader of the Jews. He should be the redeemer of the Jews. So I don't feel appropriate that I should come in and assert my brother's position. You said he's heavy of speech and heavy of mouth, meaning he speaks with heaviness. That's um, known that Moses stuttered. And of course, on the physical level, it says in the Midrash uh, that when he was a child and he was on Pharaoh's lap and he reached for his crown and then he was like, oh wow, is he going to try to rebel against me? And he was ready to kill him and then an angel came 
and convince Pharaoh to make this test. No, he's just a child going for something bright and pretty. Jewels in one bowl, hot coals in the other. The hot coals are brighter and prettier, but of course Moses went for the jewels and the angel shoved his hand into the coals, went very hot, it got burnt, he stuck it in his mouth, and from then he was a stutterer. Um, on a spiritual level, he stuttered. Everything, of course, is true in the physical world, has a spiritual source, because his lights were so intense, he had such enormous godly energy inside of him, that the normal vehicles of a human mouth couldn't contain them. His energy couldn't flow from his mouth. His energy was too intense for his mouth to handle. At this point, his whole life, he cannot speak clearly. When Moses now goes to Egypt to redeem the Jews, God superimposes a miracle and he does speak clearly, even though God's also going to tell him, I'm giving you Aaron as a mouthpiece, as a spokesman, but God also made a miracle out of natural bounds. And the entire time Moses was redeeming the Jews in Egypt, Moses did not have a stuttering issue. His energy could flow freely through his lips. And this lasts until the giving of the Torah. When the Torah was given, it says all were healed by the energy of the Torah, and Moses' stuttering, his lisp, whatever that was, his speech impediment, was also removed. So originally, he had the speech impediment because of his enormous energy. When he was in Egypt, God created this miraculous ability for him to speak clearly, and through the giving of the Torah, he was able to actually speak naturally, clearly, and his physical mouth could contain his godly energies. Then God said to him, who gave man a mouth or makes one mute or deaf or sighted or blind? Is it not I, God? Meaning, Moses, you're telling me, oh, you can't go, you can't speak, it shouldn't be me, it should be fair, it should be Aaron. Who gives man a mouth? You think you can't talk? So now he reminds him of an incident that happened about 40 years prior when Moses had to run away from Egypt because Dustin and Viram had a lot of pressure on Pharaoh to kill him and eventually convince Pharaoh. And then Moses was taken and he was supposed to be executed. And God made a series of miracles to save his life. So who, taught, who gave man a mouth? Who taught you to speak in your defense when you were being judged before Pharaoh? Who makes one mute? Who made Pharaoh mute that he couldn't speak and say his command? In other words, he said the command in a manner that indicated he wasn't firmly committed to it. So there was sort of wiggle room here. Who made his servants deaf? That when Pharaoh commanded to kill you, they didn't really hear. Who made the executioner blind? That they didn't see that you ran away. So I did all these miracles for you. You see, I make people speak. I make people not speak. I make people hear. I make people not hear. And people see. I make people not see. Is it not I, God? I, God, did all this. I can do it. Now, as I said before, Moses eventually was completely cured by the giving of the Torah, which we see alluded to in this verse, because God here, when he says, not I, God, uses an unusual word for I. Usually the word in Hebrew is ani. By the Ten Commandments, the word I was anoisi. And that's the word God uses in this verse, hello, anoisi. Is it not I, anoisi, alluding, and ultimately by the giving of the Torah, you'll be completely cured. So now go, I shall be with your mouth and teach you that which you should say. Now this is Moses' reply. Moses replied, Please, my Lord, stand by the hand of whomever you shall send. Meaning, stand by the one you're accustomed to send as your messenger to the Jews in Egypt, Aaron. Or, stand by someone else because ultimately I know the future. I see I'm not going to bring the Jews into Israel. 
There could be other redeemers in the future. You have many agents. Rashi doesn't bring this here, but it's explained that one of the allusions he made here was sent by the Mashiach, Messiah. I'm not the ultimate redeemer. I'm not going to redeem them completely. What are you, what are you sending me now? Later you're going to send the Messiah. Send the Messiah now. Make the Messiah the ultimate redeemer, the redeemer now, and have now already the ultimate redemption. Of course, we know at this point it didn't happen, and Moses went, and not the Messiah. But by Moses saying to God, what are you sending me for? Send the Messiah. Obviously, Moses didn't just speak as some person was just trying to get out of the mission. He was speaking as the ultimate human embodiment of God's seminal wisdom. And God truly listened. So we see that Moses was sent. But what God did was he fused, and this is really what Moses was asking for, the powers of Moses with the powers of the Messiah. So Moses absorbed the Messiah's energy. So the person that redeemed the Jews from Egypt was Moses and the Messiah. The Messiah absorbed Moses' energy. So the person that will redeem us now is the Messiah who contains within himself all the energies of Moses. Because truly we need both the powers of Moses and the powers of the Messiah, both for the redemption from Egypt and for the current redemption to the complete absolute redemption with Mashiach. And now we see God's response in the simple meaning of these verses. The anger of God burned against Moses and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he will surely speak. Moreover, behold, he's going out to meet you and he will see you and he will rejoice in his heart. Meaning on the literal level, Moses is saying, all right, whatever, but I can't really speak, but okay, I'll do it. And God is saying, you know, Aaron can speak for you. No, when he sees you, he's going to rejoice. So first, we see here says the anger of God burned. And this is questioned because usually whenever it says the anger of God burned, there's some consequence. And here we don't see that Moses was punished for causing this burning anger. But other sages say, no, there was a punishment because in this verse, it refers to Aaron as the Levite, meaning ultimately Moses was supposed to be the priest and Aaron, the Levite. But of course, we know that's not what happened. And Aaron and his family became the family of the priest, not Moses' children. So God is saying, you were supposed to be the priest, but because of what you just did, I'm removing this from you. Instead of Aaron being the Levite, your family, your children will be the Levite, and Aaron and his children will be the priests. <clears throat> it does seem that personally Moses was viewed also as a priest. Definitely we know during the seven days of the sanctification of the tabernacle, Moshe served as the priest. But it's not passed on to his children on a certain level because of this. So when you go to Egypt, Aaron's going to come out to meet you, and he's going to be happy. You, Moses, are feeling, oh, I don't want to take it away from him. I don't want to cause him to be upset. He's going to be happy. He's much purer than that. And he truly was happy, and we truly don't see at any point that Aaron felt bad that his brother usurped his power, his younger brother. And it says that because he was so happy, purely, he merited the choshen, the breastplate, worn by the high priest over his heart, because his heart was so pure in joy for his brother and not anything else. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, meaning Moses, you should speak to Aaron. And again, officially Aaron was his spokesman, even though, as I'm saying, Moses could talk when he was in Egypt. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I shall be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach you both what you are to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and it will be that he will be a mouth for you, and you will be to him as a master. On these words, he shall speak to you, Rashi explains it means he shall speak for you. 
from the Hebrew licha, Rashi proves that that means for. So he's going to be the mouth, your spokesperson, because you're saying you have a speech impediment, and you're going to be the master. You mean you're going to be the authority. He's, you're going to tell him what to say. And this staff you shall take in your hand with which you shall perform the sign. 